Hi, you're listening to a Sydney Writers Festival podcast. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded live as part of the 2022 festival. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I would like to start just by paying my respects um, to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation um, and to pay my respects to elders past and present. I also want to thank you all for joining us today here on this cold, chilly evening. It feels a bit wintry already, which I'm not quite used to. And yeah, thank you so much for for being here. I want to um, yeah prompt everyone to be thinking about questions throughout the session. If things come to you, jot them down on your phone or on a piece of paper. Um, we're going to be going through some questions later on, and it's great to have nice, formulated, thought-out questions, which I'm sure you're all absolutely going to do. Um, but uh, without further ado, I would really, really like to um, yeah, say how excited I am to be here this evening with you all um, and that you're in for such a treat um, as we talk to Tori Peters. Um, Tori has an MFA from the University of Iowa and a Master's in Comparative Literature from Dartmouth um, and has published several novellas, but tonight we're going to... Excuse me. Tonight we're talking about her book Detransition Baby, published by One World. Detransition Baby won the 2021 Penn slash Hemingway Award for Debut Fiction. It was also a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Awards, a finalist for the Brooklyn Public Library Award, and was longlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. Um, please, can we give Tori a warm welcome? Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight. Um, I'm just so thrilled to be here as a trans woman talking to you about this book, which is so full of trans women and trans joy, as well as a bit of drama as well, which I think is par for the course. Um, I'm sure that uh, everybody here has, you know, already got a copy. I know that I barely know anyone in my circles who hasn't read it cover to cover immediately. But how, do you want to open up by giving us a bit of an elevator pitch for those of us who aren't quite on the party yet? Sure. It's um, so Detransition Baby. Um, it's a story of, uh, of, of Reese, who you can think of as sort of like Fleabag in that she's, you know, her life's a bit of a mess. She's dating only, unlike Fleabag, she's trans and lives in Brooklyn. And the action kicks off when her ex, Ames, who used to be a trans woman named Amy, approaches Reese with the news that Ames has gotten his boss, Katrina, pregnant, and he wants to know whether Reese would be willing to consider raising the baby in a triad in a sort of unconventional family. And I know that sounds like a lot, but it's, it's actually just the first chapter, and then the drama kind of goes from there. Really kind of does ex explode after that. It's, um, it's a bit of a wild ride. Um, as uh, a trans author, for, for use of a better, uh, like a better way of talking about ourselves with descriptors, um, you, you really in the book don't kind of rehash this idea of like trans 101 or explaining kind of like who the characters are. You kind of dive into it um, and it makes it feel very, you know, fresh and very kind of energetic. Was there ever a temptation to kind of step back and do a little bit of that explaining in the book or were you kind of just willing to take people along for the ride? I mean, I think there's always a temptation. I think there's always sort of pressure to explain yourself, pressure to, to 
you know, stop and, and be like, this is what this means or that means. But philosophically, I came from this, this sort of trans movement that came from Brooklyn around 2013. <clears throat> and the idea was really trans women writing for other trans women, partially for political reasons, but actually just as much for aesthetic and artistic reasons. And it was something that we got from minority writers in the United States. And uh, the example that I, that's, uh, kind of explains it is, is Toni Morrison, who in her Nobel Prize speech, you know, she said she writes explicitly for other black women. And that means that uh, she doesn't slow down and everybody else kind of gets the benefit of, of her writing at a full out sprint. And we were like, well, why wouldn't that work for us? Um, and in fact, there were books that before mine, books like uh, by Casey Platt in that scene, by Sybil Lamb and Imogen Binney, who wrote Nevada. And in fact, those books to me were incredible and they did work because when you're writing for other trans women, previously, I think a lot of the, the books that were for cis audience were like 70% story, 30% explanation, which meant that you were constantly slowing down and you weren't getting the 100% that you could have gotten. And so when you, but when you were trans women, you don't have to explain yourself. So you can just go at a full out sprint. And on top of that, when you're talking to other trans women, it actually requires you to sort of like have a higher, it's like it sets a higher bar for insight. Like if I was to tell you, for instance, about hormones, you'd probably be bored. You'd like kind of yawn at me and be like, yeah, hormones, wow, so Early. interesting. I just did that but, like earlier today, um, like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, you know, so it means if I want to talk to you about something like that, I have to think about something that you've never thought about before. Like, you know, if I want to talk to, to you about hormones, I have to be like, what do, what, what do I have to say that not even other trans women have heard, have heard about? High bar for like the level of insight you have to bring to your book. And I've generally tried to just trust cis readers that if you bring a high level of insight, if you're writing at a full out sprint, that they would prefer uh, that level of just like intensity uh, to kind of like slowing down for a primer course that, that I, I've tried to have faith in, although I'm like, you know, they start directing it to people who are in the know. I've had faith that people who aren't um, are, are want to want to go along as well. Is, has that changed over the past little while since the book has kind of come out and been this extraordinary success, like coming out of this scene of especially trans women writers, which was a little bit more regional and a little bit more kind of like um, this this tight circle of people with this international success. Is there ever kind of the temptation to be like, maybe the next book will be like 20% explainers just so I have to do a little bit less of that? Or is it, have you doubled down? I, I think, I think for me, the, the real question is fear. You know, like when I wrote this book, I didn't know that it would be, that it would be, I, I'm currently in Poland, like I'm, you know, and so it's like this, this, it's kind of crazy to me that I'm, and that I'm had interviews with like sort of the Polish, uh, Polish press, which where there's the trans issues are, you know, pretty different than in the United States. I just was in Berlin and, um, you know, I didn't imagine this at all. I, I was writing I had self-published those novellas that you mentioned. I'd self-published them. And, and so when I was writing this book, 
I was sort of like, yeah, maybe a couple hundred people will read it. <clears throat> and that's like really, it, it was freeing for me. I could throw in jokes, you know, I could throw in things that were like a little risque. I wasn't so worried about being politically correct. I wasn't so worried about like hiding dirty laundry. I was just like, this is how it is. This is how I talk about the, about being trans with my friends with like all the bitchiness, all of the honesty, all like the sort of like absurd sense of humor. And what I'm more afraid of with the next book is that uh, not so much that I'll add explainers, uh, just because explainers bore me, so I don't think I would write something that bores me, but I'm worried that the fear will make me cut jokes or cut, uh, you know, cut edge off that, that I trusted were, was fine before and that, that I have to push myself a little bit now to, when I think about like a big audience, to be like, no, I, I know this joke is, 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 is pushing a little bit, but I think it's good. I think it's funny. I'm willing to take the risk instead of thinking about like, oh, in this last book, you know, this part got me so much grief that maybe I'll never write something like that again, you know, to just kind of ignore that and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep writing as I've always done. And, and that for me has been the, the big struggle of the last year and a half is to, I didn't exactly brave before because I was like, whatever, this joke is for my friends. And now it, it requires a little bit more like, no, I, I believe in it, you know, and, and, and psyching myself up for that. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, as a trans woman reading the book, there are all these delightful and intense moments where I'm kind of like, can, like, can we tell the cis people about this? Like, is this okay to kind of reveal to the world? Um, but more often, those moments are happening around the characters' experiences of self-doubt, of shame, of things like that. I mean, for all of kind of the talk about detransition, it's really the way that the characters deal with the shame of all of their experiences is incredibly, um, I don't know, like puncturing. Was there ever like... Yeah, what kind of, what led to the emotional journeys that they kind of end up on? Well, for me, I mean, shame is a really, has been a topic that I've always been interested in writing, largely because I have a lot of shame or, you know, I'm constantly uh, thinking that I don't and then rediscovering some new pocket of shame. And, uh, you know, I think this is like a concept that you can find in sort of therapeutic ideas that, 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 Shame festers when it's unsayable. Shame festers when you can't write it, when you can't examine it, when you can't find the words for it. And so a lot of my writing is about trying to, to articulate shame, to, to, to basically pick it up, hold it, be able to examine it from all angles. And that usually when you actually are able to, to speak the shame, when you're able to, to, to look at it, you realize how much less power it, it should have in your life, that actually it's not a big deal, that, you know, your past, uh, what, the way you came out, the mistakes you've made, well, so what? If you can speak them, you can, you can look at them and you can move through them. Um, so that was always, that's, and that's actually what I've loved in, in other books, that, that I, you know, I'll experience the shame of people who are totally different than me, and I'll be like, oh, well, they move through it. Why can't I move through it? And I was like, well, why? And why? Why shouldn't I 
as a trans writer, write my shame the same way that, like, you know, I, I thought about, like, Carl Ova Kanausgaard and, and my struggle and the fact that that book is just, like, rife with shame. And it's like, well, here's this this tall, handsome Norwegian man, and he's talking about shame, and, and I don't even think his shame's a big deal, so why can't I actually talk about my shame as well? Um, and and that also led to things like detransition, you know, concepts of detransition that have been weaponized uh, by other people, and, and that as a result, that shame that I think isn't even necessarily ours, but that we've picked up, um, I was like, why should I let this be like a taboo subject? Why should I let this be a weaponized subject? I'm going to pick up concepts like detransition, and I'm going to I'm going to play with them the same way that I'd write about anything else uh, that's kind of put on me as as a shameful subject. Absolutely. I mean, it it leads me into asking about the character of Ames, the the character in the book who um, has detransitioned after living as a trans woman for a long time, um, and getting inside the head of that perspective, like it is a bit of a taboo, even in trans communities of talking about people who've detransitioned and yeah, finding the, I guess, compassion for that perspective. Was that a complicated process or did that just kind of happen naturally as, um, as they arrived on the page? Uh, it, it happened largely because I felt entitled to talk about transition. You know, like, and I think that was that was something that I, I began the book. You know, the, the idea that like I was doing something taboo kind of more came after I had published. At the time, I was like, I feel entitled to talk about transition. I don't see why we've seeded transition as a taboo subject and seeded as a weapon because I don't think it belongs to the people who use it as a weapon. I mean, if you think about it, in order to detransition, you have to first transition. So the de- detransition, it looms as a possibility for those of us who've transitioned. Why shouldn't we get to talk about it? And, you know, initially I began to think about, uh, there's like sort of two ways that I think about it. One is the way that you have it in the book, which is that why people detransition, the, the story out there is, you know, oh, people are wrong about their gender, they've, they've made a mistake and they've detransitioned, or they've transitioned and and they had to detransition, and they've they've ruined their lives. So nobody should ever transition because you might make a mistake and ruin your life. That's kind of the story that's out there. And from people that I know, I know people who've detransitioned. Number one, they haven't ruined their life. They're often very happy people. They've they're very content with their bodies. They feel attractive. They have friends, lovers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but on top of that, other people who I know who are who were unhappy. The reason that they detransitioned wasn't because they were wrong about their gender and they made a mistake. It's that living as a trans person is really difficult. And so you detransition because you're like everybody else, you're making, you're constantly negotiating with various things in your life. And at some point in your life, you may see, you may say, actually, my family's not talking to me. I can't get a job, you know, all the sort of usual list of things. And I'm willing to do the calculations and the calculus and say, okay, I'm willing to live in this repressed state, this like sort of numb state in order to do this. And I'll get to the character of Ames, I'm sorry, but I, I feel sort of passionate about Absolutely. this. Um, which is that I also like to take a moment and say like also, so the, the thing that has, been re- that has been weaponized in the conversations about detransition is the idea of regret. The idea that you, okay, if you do this, you might regret it. And... I just think this is a fantastic opportunity to basically be like, so what? So what if you regret it? 
who cares? Uh, the, life is about trying things and making mistakes and regretting them. You know, if you move across the country for a job and it doesn't work out and you have to move back, nobody says, hey, never take a job in another country. Let's outlaw anybody ever taking a job in another city, another country. Everybody stay exactly where they are, always and forever. And I don't see why you wouldn't extend that same freedom that you have for, for, for changing your life for a job. I mean, you can lose years in a job and nobody says don't take a job, why you wouldn't extend that same thing for something like gender? And the idea that actually if you do transition, you have to have like a, a dead-eyed target like over there. You're like, that's my gender. As if everybody else isn't constantly also kind of trying to figure out their gender. Like even within womanhood, you might go through a, a period in which you're more feminine or less feminine or butch or whatever. Like people are constantly moving around in this way why would you have to, in order to transition, have an idea of gender that's like dead fixed? And I like the idea that if we can destigmatize detransition, you can say, actually, it's fine. It's fine to figure out what your gender is. It's fine to change your mind. It's fine to move around. It's fine to make mistakes. And I say this not only in terms of like, you know, bigots who've weaponized it, but also in terms of trans people. Like if somebody transitions and then detransitions, it doesn't mean they betrayed anybody. It means that they're trying something new. And actually, they probably have a bunch of wisdom that I would like to know. So please transition, detransition, do whatever you want. Come back. Tell me what it's like. And, and let's not make it this shameful, taboo thing. Let's, let's make it a possibility. Like detransition could, be, could actually be a, a, a just fine and great thing. Um, and I, mean, I don't know why we wouldn't consider it that way. Absolutely. I mean, you're not short of wisdom yourself. I think that I cannot agree with you more. Um, I've been reading through the book again and keeping lots of like notes in the margins about things like that. And one quote keeps coming back to me earlier on in the book. Um, Katrina's talking to Ames and is talking about divorce, which is another theme that kind of runs through this book and says, in reality, everything is more ambivalent. My own reasons are closer to a tone than a series of cause and effects. And it is, I feel like I need that like on a cross stitch or like, you know, burnt into a piece of wood or something, because it feels like it doesn't just cover that, but everything the book's saying about and everything I'm trying to talk about ever, it's like just that generosity. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is often what I'm trying to do in, in, in I think as a, as a, you know, I think this is what fiction gets to do that in fiction you get to be wrong a lot, like you don't actually have to have reasons, you're not writing essays most of the time, and you're oftentimes not even writing as yourself, you're writing as these characters who can be messy, who can be incorrect, and you can kind of just like smash them together and see what kind of effects they, they are created, what kind of ideas come out of that. Fiction can be a test case for your own life, as I think this book was for mine. Um, and so to go into a, to go into something and basically be like, I'm tr trying to figure out like a tone or a mood, a mood in which I want to live rather than like a, an ethos or a politics. Um, that for me is actually a lot easier because my desires and my politics aren't always perfect. You know, they aren't perfectly aligned. Sometimes I want things that I'm like, that's is that is that politically regressive or is this, you know, what kind of compromises are am I making? But a mood, you can live in a mood. You can live in a tone. You can you can find ways of being that way that are that are like more in your body, your heart, your emotions, rather than like 
always in your mind. And, and fiction for me has always been a place to sort of discover those, discover those moods. Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, I want to talk well, thank about. Thank you for the question. I want to talk about um, the word in the title that is the most loaded for me, which is not detransition, but baby. I mean, I feel like there the exploration in in your book and and broadly in the world about trans women and motherhood is compelling and complex. Um, and I don't even know how you start to chip away at that. To, to kind of dive into a book. Where, where did that idea come from to, to talk about trans motherhood? Um, I mean, it came mostly from my life where I was trying to figure out, you know, I was on the far side of transition and I was kind of like, what comes next? There's a, there's a, a sort of tongue-in-cheek thing in the book about the sex in the city problem, which is that every generation of women, and by this I mean cis women, uh, historically, has gotten to an age in their life, you know, when they're looking for meaning. And to me, uh, it seemed like every generation reinvented uh, the same sort of four four options for how to find meaning. You can embody by the Sex and the City characters. You, know, you can have a baby. You can find a husband. You can um, you can have a career, or you can maybe find meaning through art. But that the both, there's a, both a freedom in those four options and it seems hard to transcend those four options. And for trans women, it was like, we are aspiring to have those four options. We're not even quite caught in the contradiction of, of, of only having four choices. We're aspiring to have those four choices. Um, and so, but of those, of those four, the one that seemed most difficult uh, for trans women uh, seem to be motherhood because it, to solve the question of motherhood, in some ways, you have to solve some of the others. You have to solve a question of family. You have to solve a question of how are you going to, you know, make money to to raise a child. Who are you going to raise this with, and how, what kind of uh, meaning are you going to impart to that child? So you solve the other three, in, in some ways, in that question of the fourth. And um, the other thing is, I thought when you start having trans mothers you start breaking the nuclear family. Like when, when, I mean, theoretically a trans woman and a trans guy could, could have a family together with no third person involved. But for those of us who aren't dating, uh, to have a trans family, those of us who aren't dating a trans guy, um, there's always, uh, or those of us who can't, you know, biologically have kids, there's always another woman involved. So for me, if I, if I want to raise a kid, where does the child come from? It comes from another woman. And I was thinking back, I was like, what is like the, the wh what does it mean then that our families are always going to have three people inherently in, in what this means? How can we have nuclear families if there's always a third person involved? How do I, how do I settle this ethically? How do I think about the family that way? And I realized that like the oldest um, the oldest story I could think of about two women and a baby was um, King Solomon in the Bible. You know, it's the story of, of, of uh, like, who's, what is the legitimate motherhood and how does a mother prove that her motherhood is legitimate against another woman's motherhood? Like, that's a, and, and I was like, why does it, 
how does that work with trans women? Like, where would trans women fit in this? How could you reinvent these old stories to, to, to sort of account for ours, ourselves? And um, so that, that led to the, the, the question, uh, that led to the premise of the story. And then as I wrote it, you know, it just kind of spiraled into all these other questions of, of, of motherhood and what makes for a legitimate motherhood and whether motherhood would actually be a thing that could, that could provide meaning as a trans woman and, and to what degree is motherhood a, equally a fantasy versus the theoretical motherhood of a child versus a concrete motherhood of like my child. All of these things um, you know, b- began to arise for me from the text and I had to discover that stuff in the process of writing it. Was there, was there ever a version of the story that kind of harked to that Solomon-esque tale where it was just about two women kind of having this argument? Or was there always the third figure? Like, was the thruffle kind of integral to, to this story in your head? No, it was exactly as you say. The, the original idea was I was very interested in, like, the sort of Aristotelian, like, protagonist-antagonist. One person wins, somebody else loses. There's one baby. One person gets the baby. One person doesn't get the baby. And as I, as I wrote it, I began to be like, this doesn't actually feel like what I believe. It doesn't feel like the world that I live in. And I had Reese's voice always, like, that sort of catty, um, the little bitchy voice that, that that sassy or whatever word you want to use for Reese's voice. I always had that. And then I went through a period of my life where like things were a bit hard for a while. I did consider detransition and I, I was like this other voice that was like the voice of that experience kind of came up this sort of numb, slightly just distant, slightly dissociated voice was present. I was like, oh, this is the other voice that wants to be like in the negotiation here. Um, and, uh, and then once Ames was there, I could begin to see how it, instead of it being protagonist antagonist, that, that the three could sort of create uh, stability, that there's a, you know, there's a, there's a, when you have three points, you have a stable plane and that maybe the answer was like a stable plane. Um, and, and the whole thing kind of opened up even, even mathematically or in terms of like, I think you mentioned the title. I'll just say like one thing, like for me, the title, the, the experience of, of being trans actually happens on top of the comma. So that like, that's, that's, where, that's where my trans existence happened is, is here, this tiny little uncomfortable space. And uh, on one hand, it seems like if I could only fall backwards into tra- detransition and figure out how to be comfortable, uh, you know, compromising with what the world wants me to be, uh, and, and detransition and live as a man, that could be an option. Or if I could only fall this way in, into having a baby and having a sort of legitimacy of, of motherhood, that could be an option. But in fact, my existence is here, and it will kind of always be there. And and that sort of this is sort of like a pictogram of the problem uh, and that opened up sort of how to frame it with Ames with Reese and with Katrina you talk about um, kind of this voice this other voice this non-Reese voice that you have that kind of sprouted the character of Ames 
was kind of writing aims and their their thoughts and feelings a way of kind of almost like exercising that voice? Um, or, or what was your kind of relationship to it afterwards? I think initially it was something like that. You know, in the same way that I was exploring motherhood, I was exploring a little bit detransition. Um, the voice of Ames came because I went to, I had a friend who was getting surgery uh, in Guadalajara, Guadalajara, which is where like a lot of them before you could get it easily in, in, the, in the States where a lot of women I know went to go get trans surgeries. And I had not had the marker on my passport changed. So I, I put on a suit to basically go through customs because I was like, I don't want to deal with this. And of course, it, it went fine. It went through customs, but the the airline lost my luggage. So I kind of spent a week in Guadalajara, like wandering around in this suit, looking sort of like, it's a really like skeezy suit with like a really skinny tie. It was like a Reservoir Dogs style suit. And I kind of like walked around Guadalajara in this skeezy suit as like an androgynous Reservoir Dog kind of mumbling my way through the world and um and I was like this is you know this is a I don't know what this is but this is something I'm experiencing something I'm experiencing numbness I'm experiencing dissociation I'm experiencing all these things and um that voice yeah it came from it didn't come from my mind it came from like this experience and um I kind of just brought it back with me I don't know. That it sounds like more mystical somehow than than maybe your no, question. No, it's great. I uh, mean, I uh, androgynous reservoir dogs is not the movie. I realized that the remake I needed, but it really <laughs> is. <laughs> um, I I'm fascinated in your exploration of this kind of thruple form, which I feel like has so often in fiction been explored as like the love triangle, whereas or, you know, kind of this adversarial kind of three pointed figure and in Detransition Baby, it comes across as, as very loving in its many kind of conflicts and difficulties and things like that. Um, but goes back to the idea of like shame and of hope and of complication. Like how was balancing talking about, um, yeah, the experience of, I guess, non-monogamy in this book in a way that still didn't feel, I guess, preachy and kind of got to what you were saying? Well, I think it's that I don't necessarily have faith in the thruple. Like, I don't think that the thruple is inherently better than the couple. I don't think, you know, I don't know if uh, having five is better than having three. I, I don't necessarily, you know, I think I couldn't preach about it because I don't necessarily believe in it. Uh, I don't not believe in it either. But it, it, I'm not suggesting that everybody just abandon the nuclear family and go get a third. I think, the for me, the point of the book or what I'm trying to do in the book, and, and sorry, slight spoiler alert here. Um, if you think about the structure of the book, at the beginning, it's three people being like, can we have a baby together? And at the end of the book, it's three people being like, can we have a baby together? And so you can look at these two points and be like, does anything even happen in this book? They're at, at the beginning, at the end, they're in the same situation. And for me, the, the answer is that the journey isn't one of like, oh, we've, we've gone on some adventures and, and the plot has resolved itself. The journey is of 
stripping away the kind of lies that you tell yourself, the, the coping mechanisms, the delusions, the narratives about who you are in order to make yourself feel okay. And so at the beginning, they're considering this question replete with all of the lies, with the delusions. They can't actually see clearly what they're trying to do. And at the end, they have to consider the same question, only this time they can't lean on any delusions, they can't lean on any, on any coping mechanisms or sort of self-lies to ask that same question. And they have to consider this question honestly, without ideology, without sort of propaganda. They have to say, am I actually willing to raise a child with this person who's dissociated? Am I willing to make a 20-year commitment? And if I'm not, here's the moment to actually say it before I have a kid. Not to say, oh, queer families are right, queer families are the way to go, but can I consider Ames as my partner? Can I consider Katrina as my partner? Is Reese really willing to make the changes possible, to, to make this possible? And the answer might be no. And you should know that, that, that just having a new family formation isn't gonna solve everything. I mean, I think this is actually, for me, Katrina's dilemma in the book is that Katrina is a divorced woman and she sort of pulled the heterosexual nuclear family off the shelf and she was like, uh, okay, well, can I fit myself to this model? And she couldn't. And then she pulled a queer model off the shelf and she was like, can I fit myself to this model? But in, in, in both cases, she's just pulling something off the shelf. And so neither do I, I, I don't think that the solution is pulling something off the shelf. I think the solution is stripping away the stories and ideologies that you tell yourself to figure out what you really want and then creating the model that might work for you um, and also acknowledging that maybe you don't know how, maybe it's too hard, uh, but that's kind of, that's living. It really, it really is a book of kind of stripping away all of those layers. Like, um, I adore that your dedication in the beginning is to divorcees um, and this exploration of kind of what post-divorce looks like for cis women and how closely you paint it to the exploration of trans women exploring themselves. Um, I, I, I know that, yeah, you share like both of these experiences. How, how do you kind of synthesize those, those differences and similarities? Well, you know, I began talking to you about a little bit the... Um, how I wrote for a trans woman or I wrote for a trans audience. And, and that was certainly really true um, when I wrote those novellas. Slowly over time, I began to be like, well, what even is a trans audience? You know, the trans people aren't monolithic in what they believe. Trans people don't necessarily all share the same sensibility. There are many trans people who don't like my writing, you know, and I can't say, and that they don't get what I'm doing and they're not interested in it. So I don't necessarily share that with them. And so then, really, what does it mean to write for an identity? Because identity categories, they're, they're kind of political, they're kind of fixed, and oftentimes, like, the messiness of literature does, isn't captured well by identity. So then I began to say, like, well, okay, I'm not writing for trans women as an identity, I'm writing for those trans women with whom I share an affinity. And I, I began thinking about affinity rather than identity. At the same time that this was happening, I was, I was reading all these books by divorced women. And it wasn't like I chose to write, I wasn't like, the, I'm looking for the divorced cis women category at the bookstore and I'll just pick all the books off of that shelf. It was like, I just found myself over and over reading those stories. And I was like, why? Uh, 
And if you think about it, the life of a, of a, of a divorced cis woman is very similar to the life of a trans woman in that you live your life expecting certain things and how things are going to go. And then there's like a moment of break or a failure. And after that moment of failure, you have to move forward without getting bitter or without kind of like reinvesting the illusions that brought you to that failure in the first place. So the divorced cis women were framing questions about how to move forward, how to live, how to find meaning. And those questions were like wildly uh, applicable to me. They were like the questions I was like, this is, this is how I, this is how I need to think about the world. I was, you know, Rachel Kosk, Elena Ferrante. I, was, I thought about Sula. I thought about a lot of different books um, as, as being really relevant to me. And then I had this idea of affinity amongst trans women. I was like, well, why isn't my affinity actually kind of across difference in certain places? Why should my affinity be bounded at identity? Can't I have affinity in this certain way where I'm still speaking directly to the people I have affinity with and, and with the sensibility that I come from, which is a trans sensibility, but that this can kind of break a bunch of the ways that we're constricted, you know? Divorced cis women, they gave me their books. And for me, I wanted to be able to speak back. I wanted it to be a conversation. And so much of what happens, I think, right now is this ideas of like, you know, stay in your lane. You get to talk about this stuff. You can't talk about that stuff. And and then you don't have you don't have that sort of like confluence. You don't have that empathy. You don't have the ways that 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 you know, one person vibrates at the same resonance that this person vibrates and that like that resonance together sort of amplifies everything. I wanted to have access to that. And I wanted people to, to follow me through that in, in ways where they weren't used to it. So to create a path between divorced cis women and trans women, it seemed like that was a path in which I could name a resonance and people could see like, oh, we can speak across difference. We can resonate. Uh, our experiences can resonate and it can be a conversation precisely because I think that difference hasn't been ossified. I mean, no one, there, there's not, it's not a common thing to, to, they're not common categories to sort of mash up against each other. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Um, you were talking earlier about this character of Reese, this catty or, or bitchy um, and absolutely delightful character who I think kind of feels initially in the book the most kind of related to that canon of trans women writing about their experiences and the messiness that often occurs in trans worlds and especially like T for T related worlds and things like that. Um, and I guess... Well, I, well, I, it, comes out of a friend who, is, who read your book and kind of said to me that it feels as much like a story of post-transition baby as detransition baby, like what happens afterwards, as you were saying earlier. Um, and I'm really interested in what happens afterwards, not only for trans people, but for trans literature, like exploring these kind of like depths and nuances of trans people post and outside of transition narratives where do you see the future of kind of trans writing and trans art? I mean, I think that's a question for, for that all of us are kind of trying to figure out right now. And I'll, I'll just kind of give a quick schema that I think about the development of, of minority literatures. And I'm taking this, the first three stages from Joanna Russ, uh, the, the feminist writer Joanna Russ. And Joanna Russ said that 
she was talking about the development of women's literature, or, or and you can think about it for others as well, that the first stage is sort of like, we're just like you. Like, come on, you should like us, you should agree with us, like, you know, you should see us. The second stage is a stage of rejection, where it's like, we reject you, we, we posit ourselves in opposition to you. And then a third stage, which is sort of like a T for T stage in trans literature, is actually we have nothing to do with you one way or another. Like, whatever you're doing and whatever we're doing, they're separate, we don't define ourselves either towards you or against you, we're our own thing. And then there, I think there's a fourth stage, which is the stage that we're in right now, which is when the sort of dominant culture picks up the lens of that smaller culture and starts applying it to itself. So you can think about, you know, with straight literature, like ideas of sexuality, straight people now oftentimes define their sexuality through lenses and terms and ideas that were thought of by queer people. Similarly, you know, white people often now understand their own race. It's not that they, you know, it's not an unmarked category. The same uh, structures that were operative for people of color, white people are now seeing are operative for them. And that's due to work by uh, black scholars and scholars of color. And that now I think what's happening is that cis people are like, oh, they're picking up the trans lens. And they're like, oh, we have a gender too. Like, it's not just, you know, uh, male and female and we don't ever do it. It's like, we're, we're doing gender all the time. And you see you see uh, cis people being like, oh, oops, I'm, I'm doing a gender. I'm being a lumberjack. I'm being a ballerina. I'm doing, I'm, I'm a fisherman. I'm whatever it is. Like, these are all genders that, that and the, you can see sort of cis people be like, oops, I'm doing a gender. I didn't realize I've been doing it for years. Um, and that changes the landscape. The fact that it's like spread amongst amongst cis people, and I think that so then the question is what is trans what is trans art when when the the world has come to see itself the way we saw it like it's moved to us in some ways we didn't move to the world the world moved to us and and now how are we going to reframe ourselves in this sense and <clears throat> you know I so I see I'm I'm looking at trends right now and I'm thinking about this in terms of trends and I see a lot of trans artists. I think about like Zachary Drucker, for instance, who had the show The Lady in the Dale on HBO and she's a filmmaker. You know, she's looking in, into the past, into like Andy Warhol, into um, yeah, the Factory Girls to sort of be like, what was trans in the past? And, and if we can see what it was, if we can sort of archaeologically pull it back up, we can see a trajectory and maybe we can tell from that trajectory what, where, the, where things could go into the future. I'm on tour right now. I've been to four countries in the last, um, you know, uh, week or two. And I've realized on this tour, I was realizing a bit beforehand, but the degree to which um, I'm realizing it is, is stronger now is how much trans culture as I know it is Anglophone, is, is, is uh, those of us who speak English exporting our ideas to other places. And I'm finding um, that actually some of our preoccupations are, are extremely provincial. You know, they're really, they're bounded by English, they're bounded by uh, our language, and that other places might have better solutions, might have better art around these questions. I mean, even the word, uh, so I, I have my, I'm in Poland right now, and the Polish translation, I'm at the translator, and in the book I talk about baby trans, and, and baby trans as a sort of... Um, uh, 
those people who are just transitioning as, as sort of babies who are learning about their transness and also there's baby trans and sort of like real age versus trans age, all of that is contained in the word baby trans. Well, baby trans is actually not that great a word. You know, it's like a, it's just like a, it's just mashing two things together. What's that literary concept? Suitcase, whatever it is. Um, uh, it's not that pretty. It doesn't contain that much. Well, actually, in Polish, there's a really cute word for this. I'm not going to attempt to say the Polish word here, but it's like, it's it feels like when when they're like, this is the word that we came up with for this concept, and it has a tradition, and it has all these resonances. It's actually like a piece of it. It's a very cute word that actually is like. Uh, the word that they use for baby Jesus, you know, like that little thing. And so like the idea of like mixing baby Jesus and mixing trans and like what's like subversive and transgressive about it, what is doing all this stuff. They're doing it in Polish. We're not doing it in English. I think their way's better. So I'm excited that now what used to be very provincial is starting to be global and I'm discovering these res resonances. There's a book called uh, in Spanish, Las Malas by Camila Sosa Villada. And in English, it's translated in, in the UK as the Queens of Sarmiento Park in, uh, in the United States as Bad Girls. And it was amazing for me to read this book because it is exactly the same as Detransition Baby. We didn't know each other. We'd never talked. We had no overlaps and sort of friends. But it's a book about trans women and motherhood and men and like, you know, what it means to sort of deal with men as trans women, um, what it means to have community, what it means to have trans mothers, all of these things are in bad girls. And we didn't know each other. We didn't know each other. So what does it mean that all across the world, people are sort of creating very similar art in their own context? And in interesting ways, like bad girls is magical realism. So, so like, suddenly I can see the questions that, that interested me in, in Detransition Baby put through a lens to show them back to me in an unfamiliar way and to see all sorts of new things. And so my excitement for this moment is that, that there's trans culture and it can be both sort of hyper-local and now there's the possibility for it to, to start having global connections. I mean, I'm, I'm an American in Poland talking to you in Sydney. Uh, that could not have happened or it would have been very, very strange for it to have happened 10 years ago. And it's starting to feel like, well, of course, of course that would happen. Uh, and I think that the, I, I, don't, I can't predict what's going to happen with that, but I have, to, I have to think there will be some kind of flourishing with that kind of information being shared all across the world. Absolutely. And I, I'm very excited to, to see it and to see you be a part of it. Um, we are going to go to some questions from the audience in just a moment. So I just want to get everyone to have your be thinking about your questions, to be fermenting with those. But before we do, I want to throw it to you, Tori. Um, this book finishes with this big question and is, in fact, full of questions of kind of potential and possibility. Um, what questions do you want people to be taking away from this book and this talk with about themselves or about um, identity experience, anything like that? What do you want people to go home and wrestle with as they're trying to go to sleep? Well, I want, I want, in the same way that people are like, tell me how to, how to live, I'm sort of like, uh, tell, me your, tell me your solutions. You know, like, so this whole book is, how do you make a family in this moment? And I don't think that's, you know, the book before these three characters, 
or you know, give a definitive thing. And, and I never wanted people to look at this book and be like, oh, so clearly to the problem is to make a triad and we go forward. I think this is a generational problem. I think that uh, as a generation, we're like some of these old things aren't working and, and we, have to, we have to figure it out. And so um, that was, otherwise we'll get stuck. Otherwise we'll just sort of stagnate. And so what I'm, what I'm excited about and what I like to hear is, is that for me, I'm like, this is the process through which I refine the question. This book is, is a refining of a generational question and I can't be prescriptive about it. I can't prescribe, here's how to do, here's how to solve this problem. For me, I've, I've shaped the problem and then in 10 years, I think generationally, I'll start to have an answer. And so when I'm kind of like, what I want from people is I, I want people to just think about this question. And then in 10 years, as a generation, we can be like, look what we did. We, we, we look at all the possibilities that we came up with together um, and look at all the other books that propose solutions, both logistical, philosophical, ethical, that I couldn't have thought about just using Reese Katrina names and then in 10 years, I'll be able to write a book maybe about those three again with actually knowing uh, some real solutions for, for how, they might, how they might live. Amazing. Uh, I am excited to see you and everyone here back here in 10 years' time to, to find out <laughs> the answer to that. Um, we're going to throw to some audience questions. We've got a, a mic on either side, and I'm just going to ask if you have any questions about trans people, about gender, about things like that, save them for me after the show, and I'm happy to kind of address those. But let's um, ask some questions to Tori about the book this evening. Um, does anyone want to go first? Hello. Hi, Liz. Hi, Tori. Um, thank you so much. This has Hi. been amazing. Uh, I have a question about HIV. Um, the without wanting to, so I'm sorry, I'm very tall. This microphone's very short. Uh, I'm basically squatting down. Uh, without going into spoilers, there's a major plot point towards the end of the book that hinges on someone's HIV status. I think when I was reading it, I kind of uh, it felt afterwards in some ways like a kind of inevitability thinking about HIV as as um, uh, queerness as kind of infection and, and contagion in a way that can be very scary to, to straight people at times. I would love to hear about how you kind of, uh, how you got there with the, with the plot and how, how HIV came into it for you. I tried to do two things. I mean, the idea of HIV shows up on page seven. Um, you know, it's one of the very first things that happens in the book. And, um, and it was, I wrote that, that was one of the very first things that I wrote. And, um, and it was a moment in which I grew up in the 90s, you know, the HIV presented to me as this really scary thing. And, um, and then 2014, I mean, it happened sort of before this, but by 2014, 2015, you could get Travada. You could and and the sort of ways that that a lot of queer culture had spent twenty years navigating and in some ways being defensive about about HIV, it had had sort of fallen away, and the HIV could could figure in the book as so in the early pages it HIV figures as as a baby, 
And instead of only figuring as death. And so I wanted to start the, the book out by saying, what, can, what else can HIV be figuratively besides death? What if it is in its own way life? But so I wrote it and I started out that way. And as I got towards the end of the book, I was like, yeah, but actually the old figurations of HIV uh, still persist. Um, even the book talks about, I mean, it doesn't, this was a hard part for me because I feel like a lot of readers didn't know this. And this was a place where I was like, how much do I explain? How much can I put this into ideas into Reese's mind? But essentially the word transgender in the United States was a category that the CDC decided on because they were trying to name the vector of HIV transmission and the other things didn't quite capture it. It wasn't, you know, you couldn't say gay men because where's trans women in that? And trans women were the people who had, or feminine people, trans feminine people were the people with the highest rates of HIV. And so just saying gay, gay men didn't work, just saying MSM, you know, men who have sex with men didn't work, saying like sissies or transvestites didn't do it. Uh, so the CDC, the word already existed in culture, but it wasn't necessarily an institutionalized word. The CDC decided on the word transgender in order to essentially name a vector of disease. And so what does that mean? What does it mean that we walk around and we say transgender and how much did we choose this word versus how much was this word institutionalized and once it was institutionalized, using it allowed us access to resources. And all of this is bound up we're talking about gender, but it's bound up in the history of HIV. And it's bound up in the figuration of HIV as death. So uh, I realized that just the kind of playing with it, it early on, it was so light, the, the sort of HIV as baby, that, that actually it needed this counterpoint later in the book to, to sort of reckon with the history. And, you know, that's my attempt. Uh, it's not, I would say that there's many things in this book that, that I'm attempting to do. And I'm attempting to have, to, to take these sort of heady ideas and be like, how do they actually feel as you live them? To what degree do you, are, you know, are you, are you telling a story that's yours versus telling a story that maybe belonged to another generation, belonged to another gender, all these different things. And you don't really, you don't really know. But, but basically, what I was trying to do with HIV was was give enough context that I could say, here's how it feels, or or the, the idea or the spectrums of HIV feel to me as a trans woman today when the idea of transness is so uh, bound up in it and linked to it. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I hope that answers it. <laughs> I was just like, I trailed off because I was like thinking about it. So I was like, hmm, is that what I think still? I don't know. <laughs> but. Um, we have time for one more question. Is there someone yep. in the middle? Do you want to come over to a microphone here? Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for doing this, first of all. I just wanted to say reading The Transition Baby as a first-year trans woman was a very euphoric experience, but also very depressing and emotionally devastating in some parts. I wanted to ask how you navigated the line between 
writing something that was very honest to the trans femme experience without also getting into sort of wallowing misery porn kind of territory. How did you navigate that line? I think it happened sort of organically in that I started to find, I think I had used to think of the trans femme experience as sort of like sad or depressing or something like that. There's sort of like, and I was at the early iterations of this book were kind of like a trans version of like maybe sad girl lit, you know, and uh, in the sort of history of like, I don't know, Jean, Jean Reese or, or something like that. And after a couple of years of it, I was just like, I couldn't find it sad anymore. Uh, or I, I, you know, I still found it sad, but I found it also funny. It's like that idea that like, you know, the first time it's tragedy, the second time it's farce. And, um, and I, I began to find, you know, just gender funny. You know, it's like, it's kind of ridiculous so much that, that so much of what we do is, is predicated on, on these things that are, you know, fodder for bad comedians jokes you know men drive like this women drive like that or whatever that that people do it's like and this we live our lives uh in suffering because of these bad these bad essentially what are bad jokes and i was like once i started finding it funny then i began writing that perspective into into the thing and, and into the book the thing the book i wrote um and so the uh, the 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 first half when I first wrote it, it wasn't that funny, and then the second half just sort of became funny because my attitude changed, and I had to kind of go back and write humor in the edits. I the, I rewrote the first four chapters to try and add that perspective that came not through like wisdom, but just through kind of exhaustion. Uh, with confronting sadness, pushing me into something different, which was an appreciation of the absurd, an appreciation of the kind of joy and beauty and humor and particular sensibility of the trans woman that I knew, who I find hilarious. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you for that question. Thank you for your question. Um, and that wraps us up this evening. I, feel, I wish I could talk to you for many more hours, but we're going to conclude this evening. Can I please get everyone to give such a warm round of applause for Tari Peters. Thank you for joining us and your generosity tonight. Thank you for beautiful questions, for, for, for making me feel so comfortable here uh, speaking. I, I'm, I, I only wish I could be there in person to sort of give you a hug. Well, I'm going to see you in 10 Thank years' you. time, and we can make it happen. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll see everybody here in 10 years' time. Exactly. Okay. And, Keeping uh, a list of names. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Enjoy exactly. the rest of your tour, and we will catch you later. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a Sydney Writers' Festival podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and go to swf.org.au for more great content.